0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here discussing a strange book, Herds. A book that may not even be a murder mystery, but on our Murder Mystery World Tour plants itself suspiciously at the tail end of our latest stretch of metafiction. That book is Death and the Seaside by Alison Moore. We are talking chapters 1 to 6, or part 1,
1: of the book. And hurts. Uh, yeah,' it's, it's a very convenient book, actually. I liked it. It got we got three weeks to go through, and there are three parts. It's like it's like it was written for us. It's like it was made for us. I want to be very clear, yeah, that what <laughs> I was
0: struggling to pick a book to follow our latest stretch of metafiction because there's so many weird and interesting things going on, and I wasn't really sure who had inspired who in an interesting way that we could follow on. and then Alex Pavesi's blog uh, came onto my radar and it mentioned death and the seaside. And I remembered seeing it earlier this year when I was reading Jessica O's cold enough for snow with the recommendation of final drafts, Andrew Popel. And I went over to my favorite website for reading reviews of books and laughing at how laughable they are. (laughs) And the top review said DNF 31%. This book is dreadfully boring. (laughs) terrible. And the second review said five stars. This spellbinding psychodrama full of literary illusion and symbolism draws on many influences. Do not be fooled by its deceptively simple writing style. And I thought that's it. It's perfect.
1: I love it already. It has to be. Let's go. It's divisive. It's divisive. Look, those are the kind of books I love covering on the show. The books where we're like, this could be your favourite book or you might throw it into the sea. That might happen. Yeah. That might be the end of your relationship with this book. But you don't know until you pick it up and actually go through it and actually finish the book, I'm just saying. Yeah,
0: no, this came out in 2016 and it basically follows two, three, three women, four. Bonnie and her landlady, Sylvia Slythe, make up one part of the story where they discuss the struggles of Bonnie's life and particularly her inability to finish writing fiction.
1: Yeah, so far that's the majority of the story, but as, as you point out, there is another, another half and that's the story of Susan- Lives by the sea is probably dead. That's and... Herd's edition. The yeah, book that's... does not mention look, she's dead. It does, it does, it does open with her feeling like she's dead and having to like massage the blood <laughs> back into her leg of lamb legs or however they put her, her like muttonous legs. I don't, yeah, look, I just, it made me very hungry, is what I'm saying. The start of this book, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, look, I, um, it, I was not expecting this to be a proper metafiction where like one character's writing another character. But there there seems to be some some layers of deception in this book. There's some layers of, you know, what does what does Susan represent to Bonnie? And will Bonnie ever learn to love writing in the way that she clearly wants to love writing? And I think that's really great. I really resonated a lot with this book so far and this narrative about like parental expectations and mm. and she's also just, really living it up in the, the, the rental crisis, which is fantastic. Uh, it's very hashtag relatable.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting the way that this is framed as either a book about the relationship between Bonnie and Susan or the relationship uh-huh. between Sylvia and Bonnie. Whilst obviously in the metafictional sense, the answer is, is it one of these two? The answer is yes, it's going to be about the relate both of those relationships. But the way that it sort of divides them where Susan becomes an unreal character when Sylvia is talking about her, but is a real character when Bonnie is talking about her. One of the strangest chapters in this book so far, chapter five, is basically Sylvia stealing Bonnie's academic research into the
1: ocean and recounting it to you. Sylvia's such a, she's such a funny one because she comes in as as a predator. Yes. I'm pretty su- pretty sure Bonnie just says, like, she looked like she was sizing me up like a meal, like it's a whole hmm. thing. like She's the landlady. At first, it's like, she's going to get you. But then they sit down and they have a, a kind of awkward cup of tea. And then they have another cup of tea together, this time with sugar and milk, because Sylvia brings- the sugar and milk. And so thinking, oh, maybe she's not so bad. Maybe she's not like an awful, horrible lady. But then of course the book reveals that the, the landlady has, has a key to everything. And she's been snooping in yes. Bonnie's stuff and taking her notes and her research and her books. And she says, oh, Bonnie, I, I think I knew your mother. Yeah. Yes. Pearl. That sounds like the, da- I don't believe her for a second. You don't, she believe, is, her. I don't believe her. That's really a second. interesting. I'm not even dealing with this. I don't like Sylvia. She can suck a lemon. I'm so worried. Like, she's playing psychologist here, but I just I just don't like her well, very much. The thing much. that was
0: fascinating to me about that particular claim that she knew her mother uh-huh. was that the parallel to me was obviously meant to be the author character relationship between Bonnie and Susan paralleled in- the parental relationship that you were talking about and parental expectations. And I, I, I felt like I trusted Sylvia, but I felt that parental connection there where mm. she still is imposing expectations that don't necessarily treat Bonnie fairly. I I believed her, but I believed her <laughs> in the sense that you would believe a parent who's saying, "Oh, I was I just always do right by my child." I'm
1: like, "Yeah, sure you yeah. do." <laughs> but let's be clear: if, if I'm she, sure you're perfect, yeah, let's let's be very clear. If she does like, if she ever did know, you know, Bonnie's mother, and she's she's using this as a way to like get into Bonnie's life more than she's using it as like, "Oh, I'm genuinely like interested as as the as the how you're like." I don't know how things have turned out. I guess I f- I don't trust her intentions.
0: That's you know? one of the reasons the chapter five is so interesting, is because it's Sylvia recounting Bonnie's academic research as though it's academic research about Bonnie, as though she is a thing to be studied.
1: Yeah, I'm very curious to see where Sylvia goes as a character and how she kind of does things and and affects Bonnie because she's playing a like she's playing herself as a, as a kind of a psychologist, right? Like she's saying, "Oh, so." Bonnie, why do you keep writing about all of these accidents and like people's limbs going dead? Why is that a thing? Yeah. But it's like, I don't know, I just do. And she's like, well, there must be some sort of underlying psychological phenomenon. She's like trying to act like she's not threatening at all, but she's clearly also trying to dig into these. These underlying feelings that Bonnie has, right?
0: Yeah. And I mean, when we get to the mystery side of things, which we'll obviously do in the back part of the show today, mm. I think that's clearly where the biggest question for you is right now, Herds, is what the hickety heck is Sylvia up to or going to get up to that is going to like drive the conflict in this novel?
1: Yeah. Look, I'm very curious to see what kind of chaos an old lady who runs a, a, a rental flat, can get up to. Look, I'm very excited. <laughs> I think the other thing that's fascinating
0: character-wise in this book is obviously going to be Susan, who is kind of a condensed version of Bonnie. Like, Susan is Bonnie's middle name mm. in many ways.
1: She's the core of her! Yes, Oh yeah, S- Susan...
0: Uh, Susan is presented as an opposite to Bonnie, and in many other ways is presented as a direct parallel. Like Bonnie lives as far inland as is basically possible on Slash Lane. Yes, uh, because we, we got to have something weird and zany in our silly. crime novels.
1: They even draw attention to it. They're like, "Yeah, Slash Lane. It'll be fine." Several times, it's kind of bizarre. And I'm like, "What are you? What are you doing? You crazy?" <laughs> Susan lives by the sea. Yeah, I mean, we we have very little like. We know very little about her, I guess. We know that she, like, lives in this, in a, an apartment with with no curtains. She refuses the job to work in the tiny, like, carnival s- cellar space, whatever it is. And so, in some ways, she's kind of a wish fulfillment for Bonnie, where, like, she wishes she didn't have to work in the cleaning job that she has at the arcade. We're shown the story before Bonnie moves into her new place and gets her new job. I feel like
0: the expectation is that that has to be important. Because, like, for example, in be. The Woman in the Library, we saw Leo's letters before we saw anything else in those in that story. Because
1: yeah. it's, it's not a story that she's written before moving because Chapter 2 is all about her move. Yes. Maybe I'll have to check some of the language in there and the tenseness of it. But it is interesting that we're being presented with this is what Susan's life is like. And now this is how Bonnie's life reflects the story that she has written in the past, which is a bit of an interesting switcher.
0: Well, yeah, and it's also bizarre how specific the setting that Susan lives in is. Like we get to hear about very particular signs, very particular places that she's going. Sure. Like the the framing, the setting of Susan is almost as important in many ways so far as her actual narrative.
1: I don't know about the scenery, but I know that when I was when I was reading through it, there were like three, and there are probably more, but there were three explicit methods of death that were were called out. She goes and stands on the balcony and she thinks about falling and she remembers how her mother said that if she ever were to fall out of the window, she'd be lucky if only her legs were broke. The idea of like being paralyzed is important or having your legs injured is important. There is
0: a lot of that sort of stuff. And like, I think the curious thing for us is that normally the format on the show is to talk a little bit about where the plot's going, what we think of what the characters are doing. (laughs) And to sum up this segment, So far, Herds, I think, Mm -hmm. would you agree so far that nothing has happened?
1: I mean, (laughs) we've moved into an apartment Mm -hmm. and we've talked about books for like an hour. Yeah. That's 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 that's, what's happened, which is fine. That's page one of
0: most of the sorts of books that we would cover on this show dealing with similar subject matter. Yeah,
1: It is very. Well, this is. And look, I, I have very little experience with this kind of books. I don't read a lot of books where we just kind of experience what it is like to be a person in a space. The section that kind of piqued, piqued my interest is when uh, we're talking about Bonnie's authorship and she's talking about all the like help books that she's got about like how to write. And the entire point of this, this section of paragraphs is her reading these books on how to write and going, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, what do you mean I live in the same world as my characters? What do you mean that they're like real people? That doesn't make any sense. Whereas that's, I mean, that's the kind of book that we're, we're reading. <laughs> like she's just framed as the kind of person who wouldn't at face value understand a book like this, at least not wholly, I suppose. She's kind of framed to be someone who isn't in on the joke, although she is a very earnest author and her her writing is um you know very important to her yeah she's not as uh academic as other people might be i guess yeah
0: no i think i think that is a fantastic point i think we should probably t- close close this little this little box up here Uh oh hit, hit the hit the music open another box. and uh we will be back with more on death in the seaside uh when we return for the mystery section at the end of the show herds i hope you're prepared i yeah sure this is super right. <laughs> this is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery <laughs> world tour, here on 2SER 107.3. We'll be back with more of Alison Moore's Death and the Seaside in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you, and I wanted to talk with you about a little experience that's been happening here in Sydney over the start of this year. It is... The murder at Elizabeth Bay House. It's a little interactive murder mystery event put on by Fever, which is an events company. And uh, a few nights out of the year, the next one's on in June. Uh, you can be a guest at Elizabeth Bay House to investigate the death of Sir Sid I was recommended this event by Catherine de poulou of BAD Sydney Crime Writers Festival. And so I grabbed a couple of friends, went on down for the evening, and uh, tried to see if my books-related murder mystery expertise could hold me sway in whatever this would be.
1: Oh, he oh, oh, oh. oh, was such a great benefactor to everyone <laughs> Until he was murdered two weeks ago outside by yeah, his butler, the kidnapping little scrimp. Thankfully, he's very much in
0: jail. With that, butler very much in jail, you're invited round for the reading of the will. And uh, who was that you heard talking just then? I am a Nimrod Nomos, master detective of the Kyrgyzstan
1: cavalry. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why is there a detective in the Kyrgyzstan cavalry? Well, in Kyrgyzstan, two out of every three crimes is committed. By a
0: horse. <laughs> but nonetheless, you and your fellow partygoers to this will reading are set to enjoy a fine evening, awaiting the spoils of wealth that you are just about to come onto, along with whatever strange investigation Nimrod Nomos is carrying out. When you first arrive at the house, you'll be greeted by the leader of one of six teams. From what I hear, they spice this up a little bit each time, but for us, groups were the artists, the entrepreneurs, the equestrians, the politicians, the psychics, and the scientists. You're given an identity as a member of one of these teams. For example, I was an animal rights activist.
1: But I mean, in the course of our work, we all, you know, get our hands dirty from time to time, don't we? You know, it's just a part of the job. Uh, uh, Animal rights advocate. I mean, I'm sure this week, Alone, there's been the odd misdemeanour you've committed.
0: That dealing with Thomas Edison, it was completely above board. Thank you, Lord Mayor. I was on the politicians team, in in case you couldn't tell.
1: The, the, The nerve of you, sir. The nerve!
0: And then over the course of the evening, you'll learn a little bit more about the death of Sir Sidney and what perhaps each of the teams had to do with that death. Why investigate, though? What if your leader is guilty? Well, don't worry, there is, behind all of this, a fictional financial incentive. That's not the only way that you will earn money by detecting who the crimes
1: are committed by. You will also earn loads of money by interacting with the other leaders and playing their games and activities. That's where the real cash is. So trust no one, find out what happened but most of all have
0: So, through the hour and a half that you were there at Elizabeth Bay House, you've got perhaps 45 minutes, maybe a little less, to actually wander about, speak with all of the different characters, and find out the clues for whichever part of the crime you are assigned in your group. I really like this setup, the way that we're put into teams, the strong characters and big speeches that everyone gives on the way in created a wonderful atmosphere, and it is at this point, of course, that we get into the actual puzzle. And no spoilers. There are a select few questions that every team has to answer, and with about 20 people per team, just a portion of that team is allocated to each question, so you won't get to work on the entire puzzle yourself and will have to rely on your teammates. The actual play of the game is going about to each of the guild leaders and participating in these little mini-games that they have, each in different parts of Elizabeth Bay House.
1: Now, there are two ways we're celebrating Jeebus. What would you like to play?
0: Play a risky game.
1: Risky game, I like it.
0: Good luck to all of you. You're playing these mini-games, to gather money for your team, as the Lord Mayor mentioned earlier. And while you're playing these games you have small opportunities to interact with members of the cast, to ask them various questions about the day of the crime. These interactions were the best part. The actors do such a wonderful job with all of these little riffs on whatever terrible improv you approach them with. I
1: have royal blood, I have a secret brother it's as well. Precisely. I yeah. I
0: thought a man of your stature would.
1: As it happens, I think I lost my brother, so if you would find the me another man who looked Absolutely. exactly like me, I would appreciate I this very
0: much, thank you very much, because I am royalty too. Going into the full theatre and performance and attempting to act alongside professional actors isn't going to be everyone's cup of tea, but I certainly think there was room for a little bit more and I think that was my biggest criticism of the evening overall. There just wasn't enough time to get to be a part of the story so much as just tag along for it. I don't know how feasible it would be to get a smaller group of people rather than the 100 or so but at 60 bucks ahead, I would hope that that would be an option and I think would have really leaned into the strengths of the cast that they had there for the evening.
1: Now, uh, with regards to
0: the other small matter this evening, that of the murder, uh, we wonder. Now, if you've uh, ever done interactive mystery evenings before, you'll know that they have to be a little bit accessible and I would call this one closer to the beginner-friendly side of things. I felt like there was one particular trick that was overused for each of the little parts of the puzzle that had to be solved. I suppose I can appreciate that that's good because you wouldn't want to be allocated to a less interesting task, but it does mean that the culmination of things feels a little anticlimactic. I guess to conclude what has apparently become a review, I really enjoyed this experience, I think there was lots of room for very obvious improvement and I certainly would have liked to see either a lower ticket price or fewer people there for the evening so that you could get a bit more depth out of it, but that said, a talented cast, a gorgeous location and an accessible puzzle, more mystery events in Sydney, I really cannot complain that much. I just hope that they keep getting better. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. If you want to find out more about the Murder at Elizabeth Bay House, we will have at Links up on the podcast. Let's jump back over to Death and the Seaside by Alison Moore. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here discussing Alison Moore's Death and the Seaside Part 1, which covers chapters 1 to 6. Herds is challenged with solving this murder mystery without a body? this crime fiction novel without a death, this conundrum without a puzzle? Herds, what's happening?
1: That's a great question. I'm not entirely clear what I'm meant to be solving here. As you say, there is no explicit puzzle. There is no explicit detective, although perhaps Sylvie would fit into that slot with the way that she's rifling through everyone's stuff, apparently, peeking into the lives of her tenants. My instinct out the gate is, well, Susan's dead and Bonnie is coping with Susan's death and Bonnie is like trying to deal with the fact that she will eventually die. Like that's, that's my assumption that there was a traumatic event in the family past where this person named Susan, maybe where she got her middle name from. That would be my best guess. You know, this old smoky lady fell out of her window or maybe into the sea, broke her legs. And that's something that Bonnie is dealing with by writing stories about her. Mm-hmm. And then Bonnie puts it to paper. Then Sylvie finds the notes and goes, these are some interesting stories. <laughs> they sound like that story of that Susan lady who ended up in the hospital. So, yeah, I guess I guess that's more or less what's going on. I feel like Sylvie is definitely the, the part that is most curious to me because what is her motive yeah. for trying to, like, uncover this event and, like, make Bonnie remember or make Bonnie face whatever, whatever she did or didn't do, you know, like that's what I'm most curious about. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, you, you mentioned in the last section that there's the line where Sylvie is described as looking upon Bonnie as though <laughs> yes, uh, little a little red riding hood was being looked at by the wolf. Absolutely. And I guess that's where the challenge that I want to set you for this book lies is that obviously this is a book that's going to have a couple of little twists, couple of little reveals, a couple of little spicy
1: bits. Catches catches you off guard sort of things, yeah?
0: Mm. Yeah. You know, it, it's always going to be a bit of an impossible task to just say, like, spot three twists. <laughs> uh, because what, what, quant- what constitutes a twists. twist? <laughs> <laughs> so what I would yeah. like from you, Herds, over the course of this book, for your points, is I would like you to link a- anything adjacent to a twist. What? With anything
1: adjacent, one, yep. anything
0: adjacent to a twist, anything adjacent to a okay. Uh, with one of the like narrative devices like that Red Riding Hood comparison in the story, okay. O- obviously, the challenge in this is going to come down to largely how much you know about the texts being referenced. I'm more than aware of this, <sighs> which is why the task is so broad and simple. I'm just gonna have to go read chapter five again, <laughs> like, <laughs> pretty, like, yeah, kind okay. of. Um, look. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think that the points in this book are going to be a big deal or a big challenge, but I think there is a lot sure. to interrogate about mm-hmm. how it uses, you know, literary reference to establish things that are about to happen and the way that that works, because not every member of the readership of this book is necessarily going to know every
1: example. I mean, can I throw to you right yeah, now two, two things that I've kind of noticed that I was I'm curious to see how they play in. So one of them, let's 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 start with the Innsmouth question. Love Lovecraftian story. It's one of the stories referenced in chapter five. Is talk about the sea is mean, it's slimy and scaly and all that sort of thing. And that's yeah, that's what Lovecraft does. He takes things that he doesn't understand and he goes, what is what is the creepiest way I can describe them without actually describing them? Which is beautiful horror. Um, but also, Innsmouth is famous for being about. Uh, Lovecraft's I want to say Irish heritage and part of the reason why he's able to create such vivid descriptions of the horrors of the unknown is because what he's really grappling with is his racism Yeah, his horrible terrible racism and it's one of those really interesting literary figures because he's so well regarded but it all comes from a place of like confusion and, and disgust and hatred and like it's it's wild. It's wild that Lovecraft was such a like terrible person, but his works are so like permeating in in popular culture and ideas of horror that you you can't just be like, well, it was a horrible racist. Let's just not use his work ever again or reference it ever yeah. again. It's just not possible.
0: Well, it, it's it, it's also interesting in the way that going back to what we we're talking about in the first section of the show today about sort of the othering of the two narratives between Bonnie and Sylvia and Bonnie and Susan and how one of them becomes an, becomes an unreal character in the other's narrative. This sort of feels a bit familiar to the way that other cultures are represented in stuff like Lovecraft, where it's so
1: alien that it's not <laughs> worth describing. It's a really terrible way of putting it, but yeah, completely. Um, and I, I think that the, the sort, I guess the, the angle that I want to, want to put here, the Lovecraft angle here is that in the same way that, that Lovecraft's writing was dealing with the, uh, the underlying feelings of, of his Irishness and how he was dealing with that. Clearly Bonnie's writing is to deal with the underlying trauma that she feels she's writing about the, the problems that other people have that, that Susan has, um, because she doesn't know how to express her own disabilities or problems that sort of thing
0: I guess the other one that I wanted to ask about which I think is kind of in that same discussion where Lovecraft is mentioned is the the lure of the sea well <laughs> the the narrative of Susan is drawn to the sea while Bonnie seems to be staying as far away from it as possible what do you th- what do you think of that lure is
1: well the lure the, the lure could mean two things right like one is she's already dead and we we don't think too much more about it because she can't escape it because she's already passed on, man. The other one is that if she is a character who has become disabled and is not dealing with that very well, and she's smoking and she's in pain, it sounds like suicidal thoughts to me. Like that's the classic like lore of the sea. The sea is death. That's something that's like well-established death in the seaside. Um, And then the seaside, the like stage that you – play on that is the beach, that is the the step before the the fourth wall is broken yeah. before you move on to things that we that we don't know. Which means that the um the the paper that Bonnie thinks she can't quite remember what was on it is probably like you've got terminal cancer. Uh-huh. that's probably what that paper is. Yeah um, from all that smoking you were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do think it's it's kind of interesting that we don't talk about what's in the sea. The sea is like limitless and endless. Um, In fact, the the part that stuck out to me, and this is the second thing I want to draw attention to, is when we're talking about Sylvie's trying to interpret Bonnie's relationship with the sea. And she says, oh, you might get dragged underneath and like taken away completely by accident. But no, because what Bonnie is really drawing attention to is that someone might put you under Mm. and that that could be something that's exhilarating. Um, something that can re- refresh you, you know, that near-death experience can be exciting. Like th- there's the saying that like the closer you are to death, the more you appreciate living, right? This is all fantastic. I love your thoughts, Herds. I love
0: this idea of the book tackling like mortality, uh, which is obviously doing with the title like Death and the Seaside.
1: Yeah, we're not we're not, we're not sneaking anything past no. us, you know. I, I don't think that's the intention. <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> but I, I, I like- the variety of extractions that you've managed to get out without kind of conflicting them. I think that's, I think that's really fun. Cause it's like, as one of the things that as as someone who enjoys solving puzzles in books, I really enjoy about literary texts is spotting all of these ridiculous overlaps and being like, ah, maybe,
1: maybe it does work. Well, like I, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day for like the, the mystery or whatever, I want to focus in on the concrete details of like the blank note, um, the light under the door, which we haven't even really talked. I don't know what to say about that. It's just, it's there. It's ominous. There's someone so there's living in- someone else in, probably, in the building. Yeah, you know, it's probably Sylvie now that I think about it. It's probably Sylvie- on the, on the other side oh, of that door. it's not like a not like a Monty Hall problem <laughs> a Monty Hall problem where if you open if you if you say you're gonna open the door then Sylvie might be behind a different door yeah but then it's actually just Monty Hall if you if you open the correct door it's Susan behind there and she was real all along oh, she was real all along that makes sense I well, always gotta got always switch yeah so you gotta switch you gotta find the Susan mm-hmm. yeah no I I think that the idea of of Sylvie being behind that door and like pouring over Bonnie's notes while she's asleep is kind of a fun idea l- literarily. You never know.
0: It could be the Innsmouth people living next door.
1: Look, it could be Chi, who I don't know where we want to slot these characters in, but there are other characters. In there the are book.
0: a couple of other characters in the book, but calling them characters <laughs> thus far is perhaps yeah. illustrious.
1: There's Chi who works at the, like, the, 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 oh my goodness, the arcade. Yes. She's also a cleaner and they have a moment where Chi and Bonnie are contemplating rebellion, but then Mr. Carr, the manager walks up and he doesn't say anything, but his presence is enough to disperse them. And I thought that was really, really neat, uh, you know, like a sad capitalist sort of way. So yeah, we, we don't know much about them. Chi, the cleaner and Mr. Carr, the manager, but I'm sure they'll, I don't know, one of them's probably gonna get killed. Let's be real. One of them's gonna get pushing a damn arcade machine. Uh Uh-oh. Are you saying
0: Uh that Bonnie is actually the person who killed Susan and now she's going to kill
1: someone else? I, look, maybe- Oh, you, is she the one who pushed? Oh, ooh, did she push her under? Did she push, did she push Susan under? Is that- You're is listening that to Death of the she Reader. She pushed We under, she are discussing
0: Alison Death in the Seaside, chapters one to six, Flex and Herds. She pulled the plug. Guiding you through this wonderful literary crime fiction crossover. I'm so ready. I'm so ready. We'll be back next week <laughs> with part Euthanasia two. Euthanasia is a
1: hot button issue. <laughs> let's go
0: we'll be back next week with part 2 on your murder mystery world tour this is to SCR 107.3
1: see you then